Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Phil Nobile Jr. is a producer, director, and journalist who was recently appointed to one of the coolest jobs in the world, editor-in-chief of Fangoria Magazine. Between the recent ascension to the Fangoria publishing throne and executive producing Horror Noir, A Black History of Horror on Shudder, which I really loved, Phil has had one hell of a year. Phil and I got to catch up here in New York on all things Fangoria, and we did a fair amount of geeking out about horror along the way. Fangoria Magazine turns 40 this year and is celebrating big with issue number four, which is available now. If you haven't already subscribed, I don't know how you call yourself a horror fan. Head on over to Fangoria.com and get your subscription today. Trust me, you will not be disappointed. Now, without further ado, here is Phil Nobile Jr., editor-in-chief of Fangoria Magazine. Phil Nobile, good Hello. to see you, man. Good to see you. How's everything going? It's going. Good, it's good. It's going right. Good. What uh, what brings you here to New York today? Today I'm uh, we're doing a release party for issue three of Forbidden Planet Comics. Uh, it's become a little bit of a tradition. We've had one for each uh, issue so far. Nice. And it's been uh, always a good time. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though I caught a horrible cold from shaking 200 hands last time. Oh, shoot. But uh, Purell, man. I got the Purell this time. <laughs> I think we're going to be in good shape. Smart. Yeah, I was at the last one. It's a lot of fun to just meet the writers. And then had the, the last podcast from the left guys were there. Yeah. And the dudes who directed Pledge were there. So, I mean, overall, I mean, one thing I'm really curious about is considering the position that you're in, what does your movie diet look like? How do you kind of stay on top of all the movies that are coming out and have a foot in the older movies and discover old gems? Uh, I used to watch a lot more movies before I had the Fango gig. I used to have time to watch more movies. Um, But in terms of keeping on top of stuff, I have to do a fair amount of delegating now because I don't get to go to every film festival. So somebody at Sundance will tell me what to look out for or will mm-hmm. be responsible for reporting on that film in the issue, somebody at South by mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. I go to a couple of festivals, but just the way it shook out last year, the festivals that I went to were more to promote Fangoria's films right. than to uh, ingest. So it's, and the other, the other, the other thing that happened with the Fango gig is that people ask you to be on a jury. Mm. And so you're suddenly mainlining 14 movies in four days. Whoa. And, that's no way to watch a movie. I, I don't like that. I think three is the max. Otherwise, you're not really doing a service to the films that you're right. watching. Unless you're at home and there's wine involved and, you know, you can Man. kind of relax through them. Yeah. I I landed in Montreal for Fantasia and had to cram in like 14 movies in like Whoa. four days. And that's it was pretty rough. intense. Yeah. Um, and I barely remember them now. So. Oh, well, that's a shame. Not great. So what it's taught me to do is not take – uh, to not take watching a movie for granted. It's kind mm. of fun when I get to see stuff. And I, I used to go see everything, and now I've got to be a little more selective. And, like, you know, maybe maybe I have to wait for HBO for Aquaman. And, and right. <laughs> you know, it's gonna, it is what it is. Um, you get your Avenger tickets, though? I did not. Yeah, me too. No, I didn't understand the craze for it. I, I was like, are they are they only showing it one day? Right. Like, I'll, I'll get there. I, and, and, you know, I, I did kind of hose myself by coming to a signing in a comic store on the day the Avengers movie came Oh, out. that's right. So if I go upstairs and don't get spoiled, it's going to be a miracle. <laughs> uh, but I'm hoping. You know, that's, that's yeah. what I'm hoping. Cool. Have you seen anything lately that's particularly blown your mind in, in the realm yes. of horror? Yes. It, it's, you know, we're in this weird is it horror, isn't horror space. Mm. And to me, horror is a, uh, an emotion. 
So hmm. that's that's my yardstick for whether or not something's horror. So there's a movie that I would call a horror film called The Perfection that's hitting Netflix in May. Okay. It is um, – to tell you almost anything or even to tell you what genres it's riffing on would, would spoil it. But it takes so many twists and turns. I saw two movies this year where I could say I didn't know what was going to happen next and I couldn't wait to see what was going to happen next. That was one of them. And the other one is Under the Silver Lake, which is not horror at all. Oh, but, yeah. I just I just added that to uh, my to-watch list, yeah, which I, is getting increasingly longer. I, I told you about Fantasia and about having to see 14 movies. Right. Nevertheless, I carved out two and a half hours to go watch Under the Silver Lake at Fantasia. I like, oh, put wow. my foot down and said, I'm going to go see this. And I really loved it so much that I, I bought the, uh, Amazon, the French Amazon Blu-ray because it's already out on video over there. You just couldn't wait. Well, because they kept kicking the release date down the road. Uh-huh. And then I have this – supernatural power of when I buy something on Blu-ray, it gets released. So mm. within a week of buying it, they they dropped it on VOD. I hate when that happens. Yeah, yeah. So – but The Perfection is uh, – I would definitely call it a horror movie. It is uh, – it's gory uh-huh. and it is riveting and it is like practically a two-hander for most of the film. Uh, it's got Allison Williams riffing on sort of her, her cachet from Get Out but not repeating herself. Mm. Uh, really loved it. That's cool. That's yeah. interesting that you said that for you, horror is an emotion, particularly nowadays. Sure. Could you expand on that? That's pretty – sounds pretty fascinating. Well, it's we, – we we see it on Twitter pretty much every other week. Is mm-hmm. this a horror movie or isn't this a horror movie? Is this science fiction or is this horror? And to me, science fiction is, is, a, is a setting more than a genre, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The Fly is science fiction, but it's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Alien is science fiction, but it's a horror movie. Um, and I think that the, what's the what the and Star Trek Two is not a horror movie. You know, mm-hmm. the difference is what emotion is that movie trying to get from you? And if it's yeah. trying to evoke fear or terror or horror, then it's a horror movie. So it's just about what the movie's goal is in terms of what it wants to do to the receiver, to the right. viewer. Right. Right. That's my. I mean, everybody has their own metrics for what is and what isn't a horror movie. Yeah, but for and the me, Academy calls them thrillers. Thrillers. Like uh, yeah. Silence of the Lambs was considered a thriller when yeah. it was winning Best Picture. And then they then they call something a horror thriller the other day. And I was like, what the hell is that? What drove me nuts is when people called Get Out a comedy. I was like, that's pretty racist. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, that, that was a more complicated thing. I think that has something to do with the studio trying to jam it into the, an awards category. Oh, yeah, that's at right. At the Golden Globes. Uh, but, but you know, that also – let's not take away the fact that between Get Out and Us, he's the only guy to balance genuine comedy and genuine horror like yeah. that. Sometimes a horror movie is funny and sometimes a comedy has riffs on some horror themes. But it's it's doing both and, and maybe the only guy doing that. Yeah, and he kind of does it effortlessly too. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just has such a foot in both. With I think I heard somewhere that for, in order for the balance between horror and comedy to work, it's got to be 80% horror, 20% comedy. Hmm. And his timing in us, he's, he's – I think one of the comedic skills when it comes to writing horror that is funny is knowing kind of where to let the air out, knowing when to kind of have those moments of release, sure. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And he, I thought he did that beautifully throughout the course of us. It just had these little moments where it got so tense and then it would completely relieve the tension with just like a little a laugh here and there. Yeah. And I think all of it's rooted in, in something he said in his interview in our magazine about mm-hmm. about believable human behavior. Right. Like if you're buying what these people are doing and you're and you're never asking the audience to sort of uh, suspend too much, the, you can get away with those moments. You know, he buys this sort of uh, creative capital by getting us to buy in early and getting us to believe in the authenticity of those characters. Right. And, um, that's kind of under under celebrated, I think, when people talk about his stuff. Mm. Yeah, definitely makes a lot of sense. 
You must spend a bunch of time with him, right? Obviously, for the last article or for the last issue, rather. It's all it's all email. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I the guy I spend time with is a, a gentleman named Ian Cooper, who's uh, I believe his title is creative director at Monkey Paw. He, okay. He was like Jordan Peele's high school buddy. They work together oh, now. That's cool. Ian is Ian is uh, my guardian angel in terms of getting not only that interview with Peel and Paul Thomas Anderson in the mm-hmm. can for us, but he also got Peel to write a really fascinating one pager about like just details from three horror movies. These it's a very it's one of the most specific articles I've ever read. Mm-hmm. He he like he, he zeroes in on a detail on three different movies and just why those details sort of uh Make the difference between a good movie and a great movie, kind yeah. of in his eyes, and it's a it's a fascinating piece. Um, but Ian over at Monkey Paw also put us in touch with Osgood Perkins, who wrote a one pager about Gretel and Hansel in the oh, yeah. in the uh, the new issue. Oh, cool! So, so that guy came through in a big way. Yeah, Ian is he's my boy. I, That's I, awesome. I want everybody to know about Ian Cooper because he's awesome, <laughs> and he's helping me again in ways I can't tell you yet. But got it. Yeah, it's great. Very cool. Yeah. So I want to talk about horror noir, which was fantastic, by the way. Thanks. It took. Uh, it was quite. A, it sounds like it was a, a real. You had a real time of of getting that made, and a yes. lot of people would think that that would have been made in the wake of Get Out, but it was kind of the opposite, right? You yeah. were pitching that way before Get Out ever no, happened. No, no, no. That's no? not true. No, no. Um, All right, I have the story wrong then. That's okay. It's it's um, uh, a good friend of mine named Ashley Blackwell who runs a website called Graveyard Shift Sisters, and it's pretty much exclusively about black horror and, and even more specifically about uh, black horror from a black woman's point of view. Mm-hmm. So she's got a very specific wheelhouse and agenda, although she loves all kinds of films and yeah. she goes to see, you know, all kinds of stuff. This is her, she's, she's the expert in my, in my world, in my little bubble, she was the expert in terms of black horror. Mm-hmm. And I've known her for a few years. And when, uh, when I walked out of get out in, I think March of 2017, all I could think about was like, I, mean, I got to talk to Ashley about this. I got to see what Ashley thought about this because she'd been writing about this. She'd been waiting. Mm. I felt like, not to p- presume to speak for her, but it felt like she'd been waiting her whole life for that movie. Right. And so I couldn't wait to talk to her about it because I wanted to like experience her, her joy about it as well. And we got to talking about uh, her whole body of work and what Get Out was going to mean for that body of work. Like what was, what was the next 18 months going to look mm-hmm. like? Because – Get out with seismic. It, it changed yeah. so many things in the landscape. I think when it crossed 100 million, the day it crossed 100 million, they announced that J.D. Dillard, uh, who's a black filmmaker, had been signed to a remake of The Fly. And suddenly there was all of these things happening. Wow. And Yeah. And so I knew just from a cynical business point of view, Get Out was going to lead to a bunch of stuff. Right. But it also seemed like a moment was happening. Hmm. A moment in film history, and we were there for it. Usually, you recognize them later. Mm-hmm. And Ashley and I were sitting there at lunch, sort of recognizing it as it was happening. And so, my background is in nonfiction, television, and documentary production. And Ashley's is is obviously steeped in black horror. So we partnered on a pitch, and we made a, like what's called a sizzle reel, which which started with like the Eddie Murphy stand up about you know white people staying in the house and not getting out and stuff. And <laughs> and uh, it was a it was a catchy little sizzle, and we spent. All of 2017 pitching it. We pitched it to Netflix. We pitched it to Amazon, Hulu. We pitched it to Monkey Paw. And everybody said wow. no. Nobody wanted to make it for various reasons. Blumhouse said no. Everybody said no. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of disheartening because I knew that somebody was going to make the documentary. And I was like, what are we doing wrong? What didn't we say? What, what didn't we get across in our pitch? But um, the day after – so cut to 2018, March, I think, or February uh, – the day after Jordan Peele won the Oscar, mm-hmm. Shutter called up and said, "Let's make it." So that was what moved the needle. Yeah, and which is just such a, uh, just a weird 
story about how arbitrary it is. Like everybody has different yardsticks for what makes something matter, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't think the Oscar mattered so much, but for Shutter, it was everything. Yeah, yeah. you won the Oscar. Let's let's do it. And we pitched a four part series, but um, Shutter wanted a, a one off. They wanted a feature. Oh wow! It's supposed to be a four parter. Mm-hmm. Whoa! Yeah, that that's why we kind of jam right past the Tuskegee experiment. Why right. we fly through the '90s a little bit. Uh, there's a longer story in there, and that's why when I wrote the final title, mm-hmm. I called it "A History of Black Horror" instead of "The History of Black mm-hmm. Horror," because to me it was a conversation starter, mm-hmm. and it's not the final word. And uh, we continue today, which is almost three months later, to be just amazed by the reaction. I knew it was going to connect with people. I knew it was a good story, and I knew it wasn't my story to tell. So we assembled a table. You know, I, I said I, I described it as I said a, a dinner party, and I invited all the right people to the dinner table, mm-hmm. and they all told the story. If you've seen the doc, they tell it. Yep. They tell it to each other, which is kind of interesting. And um, I had no idea it was going to connect the way it did, the level it did, mm. and it got shutter. Talked about it in NPR and Forbes and uh, LA Times and and, and people awesome. are and it, you know they shutter timed it for Black History Month which is fine but then like three weeks into March us opened and then we got like this weird second life from it mm. and it's still kicking and it's one of the few things I think that Shutter has made available for sale on iTunes. Oh yeah, I noticed that. So I think it's uh, much better. Uh, bargain to subscribe to Shutter, but right. if you're not going to do that, it's on iTunes for ten bucks. Nice, which is cool. I thought one of my favorite scenes was, just, or just parts of it, was seeing Kevin Foree and Keith David in a movie theater talking and watching together. I thought that that whole device of putting people in a movie theater and just having them talking back and forth was pretty inventive and pretty cool. How did that come about as a uh, as a storytelling vehicle? That was in like one of the f- first drafts of the pitch. It was. It was because it, it was every time we talked to somebody, it was about we talked to somebody about horror mm-hmm. or a, a, an African American about horror. It was about somewhere in their reason for loving black horror. It was about seeing themselves on screen, looking for the at the screen to find themselves. Mm-hmm. And so we took it literally, and we said, "Well, let's put them in. A, let's put them in a theater. Mm. Let's show them looking at the screen, looking at themselves, looking for themselves." And then what we it, it just became a device like a metaphor that we made literal mm-hmm. and then it and then it uh ended up being a great way to sort of get them to talk to each other uh because we put like a highlight reel up on the screen right. and we played it in a loop so what they're watching is like a 90 second clip of Night of the Living Dead a 60 mm-hmm. second clip of Dawn of the Dead a, a bit of Abby a bit of Sugar Hill and they would see a certain scene Sometimes they were in the scene, right? right. Like Ken Forey <laughs> seeing himself in Dawn of the Dead. But sometimes they would just see a movie that they hadn't saw since they were 12. Yeah. And they would light up and they would start talking about it and they would share stories. And that would have gotten us one level mm. of engagement, a very anecdotal autobiographical thing. But thank God for – I mean we had academics. But in terms of the filmmakers and the actors, thank God for Ernest Dickerson. Thank God for Rachel True. And then Ken and Keith, they all knew so much more about the history of, of black horror, of cinema, hmm. than I anticipated, than I expected or even deserved. Like it was – That's super cool. It was like – you know, we, we rolled the dice somewhat. 
We didn't pre-interview anybody really. Yeah. Uh, sometimes those pairings were down to logistics uh-huh. and availability. Who 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 was around to talk with who? We didn't know if they hated each other. Um, <laughs> you know, it could have gone another way. Yeah. Um, so it was it was really fortunate that it worked out the way it did. That's great. Yeah. But you just put them in a room together. You rolled a couple clips, and then you just let these things unfold. Yeah, it had a very natural quality to it. Yeah. It didn't feel overly kind of. Nobody sounded like they were reading from a teleprompter. It was very conversational, but still everybody clearly knew their film history. I mean, it was a very cool balance in that regard. Yeah, and Ashley was there the whole time to sort of give them talking points if they were going mm-hmm. somewhere else. Because, you know, some they just get to talking. Yeah. You know, Ken and Keith start talking and suddenly we're we're somewhere else. We're not even talking about movies <laughs> I could have watched a whole movie of just the two of them talking. They should have a podcast. Yeah, yeah they should. That would be cool. Hey, <laughs> never say never. Yeah. Um, and then Xavier Bergen, who's our director, was, you know, making sure that he captured it all in, right. in, in the uh, – with the three-camera setup that we had had in the theater. Mm-hmm. So it was um, – it was faster than we would have liked because when they said they wanted it, they wanted it in four months. Whoa. They, it, it, you know, I, there's a longer version that I would have liked to have had the time to deliver. Right. But I, you know, maybe it would have felt like homework if it was a four part series. Maybe it would have felt a little more daunting of a thing as opposed to this 82 thing that people just come out of the viewing experience buzzing about. Yeah. Yeah. Know. It was a pretty easy watch. It just kind of, you breezed right through it, but it mm-hmm. was still powerful. Yeah. What were some of the most painful things to cut? Was there, was there anything that you really wanted to be in there? I, I think I would have liked to have spent more time on the nineties. Okay. Uh, and, and it wasn't that we were cut the things. It was that we didn't have material to really flesh it out the mm-hmm. way I would have liked. So, for example, uh, Death by Temptation, it, the logistics just didn't work out. And we couldn't get that director to come to sit with us and talk. So that yeah. was a drag. Eve's Bayou, we did not have the time and budget to film in New York. So we, we missed out on Casey Lemons. That, mm-hmm. that kind of sucked. Um, it wasn't that we had to cut out material so much as that uh, – the accelerated schedule meant that we didn't have time to get everything. Yeah. So I gotcha. Yeah. So obviously horror as a category goes up during times of social unrest. Mm. What are some of the, I mean, obviously thematically uh, there's a lot of things that are explored in us. There's a lot of things that are explored in, in get out and some more horror movies. What are some of the kind of, tra- um, potential topics that you think horror movies are going to start to cover considering where we are socially in America? Hmm. I don't know. I think people are starting to worry about sustainability and people are starting to worry about, uh, you know, what kind of world will their kids' kids live in? Mm. So I I think there's a – there's a bleak forecast kind of thing happening right now. And I'm not sure how that'll shake out. I don't know if we're going to get a bunch of like, you know, Bronx Warriors movies out of it. I mean, like knock on wood, that would be rad. That would be cool. you know, um, the I, – I do think that Trump broke us a little bit. I, uh, I think that there's a, there's a schism that nobody can ignore now mm-hmm. and everybody has to have an opinion. Everybody has to take a side. Right. And, and that makes things very binary. Yeah. Uh, and I think that when things are binary, we're not getting anywhere. Yeah. That's about all. Intellectually, that's about all I'm prepared to weigh in on. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I uh, think that's the most terrifying thing about these times is that just the internal 
division that's happening. I feel mm. like we've never been more divided. And I think mm. it's because of that binary sensibility. Yeah. And I think somebody who taps into that as a horror concept, who does it right, that could be huge. Just the internal division that is causing us as a nation to just be distracted by political correctness and all this just nonsense. Mm. When there's like bigger threats, arguably, outside of the United States. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the most terrifying thing about what's and, happening. You know, and just in terms of like American horror, the idea that we are – we're kind of – looking at what sort of Britain looked at after World War II is where we're right. like maybe dwindling in terms of like our, our place on the global stage. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that'll shake out exactly either, but yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know if we'll be worried about horror movies in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> like, as you say, we might have bigger fish to fry. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. One of the things I love about the magazine is that it has a foot in the spirit of the original in a big way, but it doesn't go out of its way to be tongue in cheek. And it is – a lot of the articles are very sophisticated. I mean Mm -hmm. it has a level of depth to to it that the the original ones sort of did, but it it, it feels like it's a whole new level. It's not like overly intellectual or something, but I mean – it's the the intelligence of the articles is is great, and it, it's got, it has a lot of depth to it. But it still does have, feel like Fangoria. Sure. So I'm wondering how how that all came together. Okay. Structurally, uh, to me, the the era that I grew up in was the early '80s of Fango, mm-hmm. and so the early '80s of Fango, it was not particularly died of the wool horror fans writing about it. Right. They were writers. They were talented journalists, and they had a gig writing about horror movies. But it was and a gig. I, and I liked that about it. I liked that th- these people um, weren't like incestuous horror fans. I liked that it was just sort of there were voices and there was perspective and uh, and there was a little bit of a reverence. Mm-hmm. It, like the early Fangos to me are closer to something like National Lampoon. Yeah. Than, oh, yeah. Totally. Than say even a Fango from 1994, right? Um, and the magazine obviously evolved because fandom evolved and the mm-hmm. culture evolved and then – once you have the internet, suddenly you don't need a magazine for news anymore. And it kind of, you know, I think it, the magazine struggled with how to how to uh, maintain those eyeballs. Right. And there was a lot of internal strife that uh, under no fault of the writers or editors of the magazine. Uh, and I've gotten to know those people. I've brought some of them back into the fold. Our 40th anniversary issue is going to have writers from – as, as much of the spectrum of, of the 40 years as I can. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, – but all of all of their struggles aside, in 2018, what's a Fangoria supposed to look like? What does it need to look like when you've got Rue Morgue doing such a great job? Right. When you've got Diabolique doing a great job and Horror Hound doing an awesome job. What You don't want to just be another one because these guys had kind of picked up the mantle from, mm-hmm. from where Fango had left. So – we had to sort of justify our space, I think. Yeah. And the way to do that was to kind of come at it from a little bit of a different angle. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I pitched uh, to Dallas when he talked to me about the gig. He wanted a um, – he kept saying the Vanity Fair of horror. Oh, and, that's awesome. And I'm like, sure, sure. <laughs> so, but at the same time, I think it needs to look like a magazine from 1983 from across the room. Right. And I'm sitting there at a printer in Dallas, Texas showing him a – Fango 32 going, it has to look like this from across the room. But then when you get closer and and so we worked on the, like the level of gloss on the cover to sort of try to replicate mm-hmm. the way the way that Fango caught my eye on a newsstand yeah. 35 years ago, right? So that was part of it. That was part of it. And um, 
the other thing was I did I did feel like it needed to sort of have a weird balance of of legacy and evolution. So when you say when you open it up, you you, you said something about how it feels re- like retro, but not mm-hmm. like it's it's very specifically. Tra- you, you you know you start at the cover and you travel through the table of contents. You travel through that original Monster Invasion logo, and then Tony and Mike's columns. Those are purposefully kind of laid out in a vintage style. Yeah. And the letters column and whatnot. And then as you get in, it gets a little more modern. Right. And then sort of takes you back out through the same door like exactly. on, on the back page with the classifieds and stuff. So that was all by design. And and I like that. And I don't know, maybe after the fourth issue, maybe after a year, we won't do that anymore. We'll mm-hmm. move into a different direction. But I, I wanted people to feel like it was their fango yeah. still. Out of the gate, at least, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as you know, that all that unrest that we talked about, I think that's a big part of why I think it was only gone for a year and a half. Was it only a year and a half? Yeah. I don't know. I felt like three years. Yeah. yeah, I was one of those people who was burned. I got I got a uh, subscription. I got two that year, and one was with had it follows on the cover. Yep. And that was the only one I got that year. That and like something else had like Vampire on the cover. Elvira. Yes, it was. I think it was Elvira, Elvira. was the last printed issue. Um, yeah. There's a couple of digital ones after that. Uh, the last two never were released, but they were curated. They were written. They were edited. They were numbered. And oh, wow. So if you look at the film strip sidebar of mm-hmm. a, a new Fango, you'll see we do have legacy numbering in there. Oh, that's So cool. I, I kept it. I didn't hear any of that for the first issue. Everybody was just Instagramming pictures of the cover. I was a, a lot of that. A and lot I was, of like unboxing. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, we put a lot of work inside the damn thing. Maybe can you <laughs> – what you think of this article? Well, they last a long time. They easily can last a quarter. Hey, like, almost it's like so we good. It that way. It's, it feels, yeah, it does feel very much like a book. That's know? great. Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah, and it's fun to kind of take your time with it. Yeah, yeah. and you know the, the, the whole goal was like a magazine that felt like it had grown up with me, right? That's interesting. So I read Fango in 83, 84, 85. And I read one version of it and I was mm-hmm. like, how do I create that feeling in myself now in 2018, 2019? Right. And it was uh, – it was – you know, that that's what we're going for. I don't know if I've gotten there yet, but I think that's sort of the dream. Yeah. No, it does feel like it has grown up with me anyway because, I mean, I do have a foot in the old kind of throwback 80s, 90s mm-hmm. horror movies and the vibe of Fangoria. Yeah. And the fun of – I would. I had a stack of Fangoria's right next to Playboys that I had to hide nice. from my parents. But yeah, they, they would take them away from me. So it still kind of has that devilish. I shouldn't be reading this feel to it. You know, it still kind of has that feel. But the last few questions. Sure. So one thing that you touched on in um, in one in in Fangoria was the fact that for horror to really feel like horror, it kind of has to have that element of danger, and it kind of has that. Sure. Have, you need to kind of at some point think to yourself, did I make the wrong decision starting to watch this movie? I haven't felt that way in a really long time. Mm. Has anything made you feel that way? That kind of level of danger that you would feel either as a child or, or teenager starting to watch a horror movie that might be a little too intense for you? Has uh, anything touched that feeling lately? Once in a while, I'll find an old movie from the 70s or 80s that does give me that feeling. But if you're talking about new releases, it's – it's um, Either or. It's harder to, to pinpoint one. I do feel like – one of the movies that I walked out and just felt unsafe after was Funny Games. Ooh, I haven't seen that one. It's the like, old one or the new one? Well, there, I, you know, I watched the I watched the English language one, but even that one's twelve years old now. So yeah, you know, well, there was one with Michael Pitt that I think came out recently. Yeah. it's not that yeah, one. Uh, Haneke made it basically a shot for shot remake of his okay. original language film uh, with Michael Pitt, Naomi Watts, mm-hmm. and Tim Roth, uh, and it was is mortifying. 
<laughs> as as a grown up who ha- who is responsible for other people in my yeah. life now and who like has a home that he needs to quote unquote protect, mm-hmm. that movie uh, messed me up. Okay. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. But for horror movies today, I, I guess I kind of. <sighs> And I sound like a bad bad horror fan, but when they're trying to be extreme yeah. and when they're trying to like be in your face about how how messed up they are, it always feels very try hard. Very much. You have to earn it, and and earning it's getting harder, obviously. Yeah. Just because the audiences are getting more sophisticated. Right. Well, the other day I, I rewatched Last House on the Left, and that mm. had I was surprised at how difficult it was for me to get through. Mm. It was real, and it's so stripped down, and it's so low budget. Yeah. And. It was, it was, there were mo- I, I, that, it touched that feeling for me, that like real feeling of just palpable danger right. and wrongness in watching something. It was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. I forgot how powerful that movie was. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of horror has sort of, uh, drifted into this carnival space. Right. Where, and you know, I'm a horror fan. I go to conventions. I, I've been going to conventions for 15, 20 years and, and, and you don't go to feel unsafe. You don't go to feel right. like messed with. Like it's just, it, it's fun because, at some point, it, it's turned into mac and cheese for us, and it's right. comfort food, and, and we want to be around these things that we love, right? And with yeah. other people who who love them too, uh, and that's that's a huge part of the community. But I just don't feel like um, for horror to grow and evolve, mm-hmm. it can't really grow and evolve from that space. I no. don't think in, in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think I read somewhere that horror fans tend to have the highest IQs out of all genre people because there's some sort mm. of connection between wanting to go to very dark places and the thrill that you get out of doing that. Mm. And it also apparently signifies, apparently horror fans are some of the nicest people too. Like I was talking to Mick Garris and he said that he let like Toby Hooper, Wes Craven, John Carpenter are some of the sweetest people he's ever met. Interesting. And apparently horror, because people don't have, if they don't have any real natural darkness in them, right. they'll be drawn to dark arts because it's so, it's such a thrill to have, like, to, to have an experience that's so far removed with how you normally feel. Right. Well, what's interesting to me is that all those people that you named didn't, didn't set out to be horror filmmakers. Oh yeah, that's right. Wes Craven was an academic and, and. John Carpenter wanted to make westerns, and George Romero right. wanted to make Tarzan movies, and and they they fell into horror, and they eventually embraced it. But their their brand of horror was more groundbreaking because they weren't just ingesting one thing compulsively. Right. I think they they had a more well rounded uh, diet, let's say, yeah, in terms of their their uh, their film education. Mm-hmm. And so when I see a horror film by somebody who's only watched horror films. There's something missing. Yeah. So that's yeah, why I mean, my litmus test is always if you can remove the horror element, is the do, do the characters work? Does the movie work? Is yeah. it still good? Like Dust Till Dawn's a perfect example. Sure. They didn't need the vampires. Sure. It's just nice little addition. Yeah. And that's why Peel and Ariosa are so exciting to me. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. they're doing new things in the space. And Hereditary. Um, I didn't like walk out of Hereditary being freaked out, but I I, I did have nightmares that night. Did you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was an unsettling movie, and a lot of it was just weird subliminal sound work that he was doing yeah just sort of you left feeling uneasy gaspar noe kind of techniques yeah yeah tones and drones and whatnot uh-huh there was definitely like a lot of yeah there were tones that just didn't feel right mm-hmm. yeah he's a master i'm really excited about what he's gonna do next yeah me too yeah it's gonna be pretty awesome you're the editor-in-chief of fangoria you guys are doing movies now you just did horror noir pretty much living the dream for a horror fan sure. what um advice do you have for people who want to do similar things as you're doing who who want to Get into the horror business, so to speak. Gosh, I think uh, what that's what this space needs and what this space is hungry for is is new points of view. 
Mm-hmm. So I have something to say. Don't give me the same, you know, think piece that I'm going to find 15 different places on the internet. Right. I, I think that it's it's great that horror is so big right now, but that means that there's so many more people talking about it. Mm. And it's turning into white noise. Right. And I think that's why you'll see on our bylines, we, we tend to like go outside the, the lines a little bit trying to find people who have something new or different to say, different points of view about horror. Right. Um, and if you don't know what that is yet, you know, spend some time figuring it out, I think. Mm-hmm. Um because I'm always looking for somebody who's got a new point of view that can articulate that point of view in, in an entertaining way. I don't want to read another college paper. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to read um, something that you did not leave your bedroom to source or research. Or like, I mean, if if you're if you're saying doing what I do, because I think what I do is considered. Um, nonfiction storytelling, right? That's the mm. big bubble. Whether it's the magazine, whether it's blog stuff, right. whether it's the documentary. I'm I'm talking about horror. And I the 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 secret sauce is that you've got to know your stuff and you've got to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um there's so many pieces I turn down because it's just somebody typing their thoughts. Right. And we're not not everybody's that special. <laughs> like I don't mean to sound harsh, but you know yeah. you gotta you gotta get it gotta get in there and mix it up with the world. Gotcha. Great. Last question. And this is just like a rapid fire, this or that. Um, mm. American Werewolf or Howling? American Werewolf. Henenlotter or Yuzna? Henenlotter. Fulci, Bava or Argento? Argento. Misfits or Metallica? Or Iron Maiden? Or none? <laughs> or Slayer? Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> Fright Night or Lost Boys? Fright Night. Nice. Awesome. Phil, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you so much. Awesome. All right, big thank you to Phil Nobile Jr. for taking the time. If you enjoy horror-related podcasts, be sure to check out everything that's going on at the Fangoria Podcast Network. They are putting out all sorts of great stuff. My personal favorites are Nightmare University with Rebecca McKendry and Postmortem with Mick Garris, which I've been listening to for a long time, and most recently, Casualty Friday with Kane Hodder, Tiffany Sheppis, and Felissa Rose. That show is a lot of fun. Anyway, guys, thank you again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. If you enjoyed this episode, it mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you haven't already, definitely do yourself a favor and head on over to Fangoria.com and get yourself a subscription. You will not be disappointed. Thanks again, guys. Bye.